Good morning. Um, today's Bible reading is Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. It's on page 1060 of your Bibles. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten any more? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of your God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you, came to, when you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths and conv- convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Well, good morning once again. It's lovely to have you here with us. I wonder if you've ever been trapped no way out. Perhaps you've been kind of metaphorically trapped by adversaries swirling all around you, a bit like our pirate on stage earlier. Maybe it's felt like there's wolves all around you circling. I don't know about you, but I've never been surrounded by wolves, but I have been trapped before. It happened a number of years ago now, and I was installing a TV antenna on the roof of our old house. The ceilings in our old house were really quite high, 
and I only had a short ladder. So to get up into the ceiling, I kind of balanced the ladder on a few of our dining room chairs, and then even then I couldn't quite get through the manhole without stretching up and kind of jumping. And as I did so, I inadvertently kicked the ladder over. I was able to still pull myself up into the ceiling cavity, but when I looked down, the ladder was kind of in the landing zone if I was to jump down, and there were chairs tipped over and that sort of thing. This was in the time before I had kids. Meredith was home, but she'd worked night shift the night before, and no matter how loudly I called out, I could not wake her from her sleep. I was trapped. I contemplated jumping down, but the fallen ladder and chairs meant that there was nowhere for me to go. I was stuck. Admittedly, it was by my own stupidity. Who balances a ladder on chairs to climb up into their roof? I needed to be rescued or saved. I needed help. And in many ways, that's the story of the book of Isaiah. Starts with a vision that Isaiah the prophet has of Jerusalem trapped. I hope you've seen that this morning through both our reading earlier and from our kids' talk. I'd love you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1. If you haven't already got your Bibles open, I'd encourage you to do that. The reading is on page 1060 of the Bibles. And I want you to see as we look at this this morning, the kind of wanton destruction that is around in the land of Judah. Judah is the southern kingdom of Israel. By this stage, the northern kingdom has probably already been wiped out. And the towns that make up the land of Judah are all destroyed. Indeed, the entire kingdom, there's only one town remaining, and that's the walled city of Jerusalem. The rest of the land is desolate and destroyed. Have a look with me as I read from verse 7. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you. Laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion, that's the city of Jerusalem, is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. When I was an engineer, I did a lot of uh, projects in the vegetable industry, and I can remember visiting commercial vegetable farms where they kind of only grow one crop at a time. When you look at a vegetable farm growing just, say, cucumbers or watermelons or carrots or whatever it is, as far as you can see, the crops are all at one level. They're all the same type. They all grow to the same height. And so as you look out on miles and miles of these vegetables, the land is all at the same level. A pump house or a shed sticks out like a sore thumb in that environment. In that environment that's one-dimensional... These houses kind of stand there. And that's the picture we read of Jerusalem. The rest of the nations around, the rest of the land is destroyed. Only Jerusalem remains. God's special city. And yet even that is under siege. Jerusalem, if you don't know, was supposed to be the jewel of the nation of Israel. It was supposed to be the place where God dwelt in his temple... It was supposed to be a place that was a blessing to all the other nations. But here in Isaiah, we read that far from being a city that all nations would be drawn to, it's like a hut in a cucumber field, surrounded and trapped and downtrodden. It's no longer a shiny example 
It's no longer the city that you would look up to. The people of Israel, they were supposed to be God's special possession. I wonder if you got a special possession, something that you treasure. When I was about seven years old, I was given a Swiss army knife. It was brand new and it was my special possession. It went in a little box and I put it safely away in a drawer. In my mind as a seven-year-old, it was a tool like no other, sharp and eminently useful with all those different functions that a Swiss army knife has. I remember it even had a tool for removing the stones from horses' hooves. When I was seven, I lived in the city of London. There were no horses for miles, and yet I had a pocket knife that could do that, and so I treasured it, and I looked after it. Israel was supposed to be God's special possession. Remember, he'd taken them out of Egypt. Back then, when the going got tough for the Israelites, God parted the sea so they could walk through as if on dry land. God loved them. He took care of them. And yet here in the vision of Isaiah, we see Israel beaten and bruised and trapped and hemmed in on every side. Where's the parting of the sea now? And the question I think we need to ask is why? Israel was supposed to be God's special nation. In chapter 49 of Isaiah, we read that This was so that they might display the splendor of God to all the other nations. They were supposed to be a light for the Gentiles, that God's salvation might reach the ends of the earth. Why are they like this? Well, let me read from verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 1. God calls the whole heavens and earth to witness what he's about to say. He says, hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Together, Meredith and I are in the process of trying to rear up four children. Admittedly, that's varying levels of success go with that. But for me, one of the joys in rearing children is the surprise and the kind of excitement that comes when I get home from work, especially from my two little boys, Gus and Hamish. Every day when I get home, walk in through the front door, they run around going, Dad's home, Dad's home. There's great excitement for them. They do it every day. They don't tire of it, and as their dad, I don't tire of it either. It's part of the joy, isn't it, in raising and rearing children. But it can also be heartbreaking, can't it? When your children purposely and deliberately rebel when they purposely and deliberately turn their backs and disobey your good instruction. And look at Israel, although God himself has reared them, although he's given them everything they could possibly need, they've rebelled against him. The indictment continues in these verses where it says, the ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. So here's God's accusation. Even an ox or a cow knows its master. Even a donkey knows its place of home and on whom it depends. But Israel, they don't understand. And here's the problem. Israel 
God's special nation who were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles have spurned the Holy One of Israel. They've turned their backs, as it says in verse 4, on Him. And as a result of this, as a nation, they are facing the judgment of God. The land of Judah lies destroyed, burnt, fields picked bare. The land that was supposed to be a land that flowed with milk and honey, the land that God set apart for them as His special people has been ruined. And that's not because of some kind of unfortunate turn of fate or bad luck. It's not just some random, vicious, natural disaster that's destroyed the land. No, we read here in the book of Isaiah, we're told that this is God's judgment towards a people whose guilt is great. And without that kind of context, this reading kind of, it's difficult, it's unpleasant, isn't it? Let me read on from verse 5. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there's no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. It's a terrible scene, isn't it? But amongst that, I'd like you to see that God is is not capricious or sadistic here. He doesn't enjoy metering out the judgment. He doesn't want Judah to be like this. You see that there in verse 5? Why should you be beaten anymore? God's desire is that Israel would turn to him in repentance. But in the meantime, the land of Judah is destroyed. Isaiah's vision... It becomes the reality in the time of King Hezekiah. We read about that in in 2 Kings earlier. Isaiah's vision points out here that Jerusalem is the only remaining city in the whole land of Israel. And even that looks to be in a precarious position. You might be wondering at this point, is there any hope for Israel? Is there any way in which this nation, God's own special possession, might be saved? As we come to answer that, I think this is what makes the book of Isaiah so relevant for us today. Because it shows for us in great detail the way in which God is a God who saves. Shows that despite the corruption of Israel, despite their rebellion and their failure to obey God, He will act to bring about their renewal, their salvation, and their hope. Now, church today needs that, doesn't it? We need hope and we need renewal. We need change. We need to be reminded that God has acted in this world to bring about salvation. I think Isaiah as a book, it's so helpful for us today because it presents Israel's story of hope and salvation despite the multitude of their sin and corruption. And Israel's story, it's part of the story of the church, it's part of our story. Understanding this book will help us to see the size of God and the way in which He is abundant in His forgiveness. It will help us to see the great love that He has for His people. And his desire that his people 
would live holy lives. They would live separate lives. They'd be marked by differences. Well, so far we've seen Judah in big trouble, surrounded on every side by their enemy, the Assyrian nation. What then is the answer to Judah's problems? Well, firstly, I want you to see what it's not. I think Isaiah sets this out very clearly for us. Their answer is not religion per se. The answer is not for them to just do more religious things. The answer does not lie in heartless sacrifice or the burning of incense or religious festivals. Let me read to you from verse 11. See if you can pick these religious activities. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. These are pretty terrible words, aren't they? Just imagine for a second if a friend of yours speaking to you one day said, I'm tired of listening to you. When you speak, I'm going to turn away. Or imagine your boss at work one day saying, I'm tired of the meetings that you organize. They're worthless. They're a waste of everyone's time. And even more firmly, just in case you missed what she really thought, I cannot bear them. But this is not a friend or a boss speaking to Judah. This is God, the one on whom they depend for their very survival. It's God saying, even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. How terrible. We've always been taught, haven't we, that God is always listening. That wherever we find ourselves, he's just kind of an arrow prayer, as the kids say, an arrow prayer away. But here we read that God has stopped listening to the prayers of Judah. God is telling Israel very clearly, isn't he? He doesn't want meaningless action. He's telling them that thoughtless religion, it's not a substitute for what he really wants. Devotion and obedience. In other words, he's saying to Judah, your heart's not in it. Your offerings and actions are empty. I don't know if you've ever bought an Apple product. Have you ever bought an Apple product, like an Apple computer or a phone or a watch? They come with great packaging, don't they? I was fortunate enough to be given an Apple watch for Christmas, and it, it came in this beautiful white box. It's only made of cardboard, but somehow they managed to make that cardboard crisp and defined and slick and kind of perfect. The packaging's amazing, and yet despite the packaging being so good, if you open that box for a phone or a watch and it was empty inside, you'd be strongly disappointed, wouldn't you? 
Stop bringing meaningless offerings, says God. As one of the commentators I read said, more literally, stop bringing me empty packages. Do you think we need to hear this today in our lives? Do you think we need to hear this here in our church? If we do, how would, we, how would you nuance this in your own life? The same lesson applies to us today, doesn't it? Religious practice on its own, it won't please God. Turning up on a Sunday morning, that won't save you. Even serving out in kids' ministry won't guarantee you a place in God's family. Although I hear it will get you pretty close. No, 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 no. no. I'm just joking. The, the Bible's word for us is very clear. God does not desire religious actions. No, he wants us to obey him and love him and live for him. And it's not just a New Old Testament idea. This is not just something that we can read of back in Isaiah. Jesus says a very similar thing in Matthew 23 when he speaks to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. At one point he calls them whitewashed tombs. You know, great to look at on the outside, all bright and white, but putrid and rotting on the inside. Let me read to you from Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. It says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides! You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. See, the law required that the people of the time tithe or give a tenth to God. The Pharisees were doing this right down to ensuring that those small things in their household, that they were tithing a tenth of their spices. And yet it wasn't done with the right heart. They were tithing, but they neglected to be just and merciful and faithful. We'll come back to Isaiah and look there in verse 16 of chapter 1 to see how similar the instruction that Isaiah has. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. I wonder today what our tendencies might be. Do we ever kind of slip into a mechanized form of religion? I sometimes wonder, as an evangelical church, whether our tendency might be towards having a great head knowledge of who God is at the cost of actually obeying what he asks us to do. Perhaps that means we might seek to know the words of the Bible and their theological importance more than we would actually seek to follow God, who's been revealed by these words? That's a great question for us to ask. How are we going at seeking justice and mercy and faithfulness in our lives? These are some of the themes of the book of Isaiah. Well, so far in chapter 1, we've seen the situation of Israel, the land of Judah and its people, God's special possession, are hemmed in on every side. They're being attacked and they're being beaten. And we've seen the reason behind this. It's due to their rebellion towards God. Even though they're God's special possession, they've turned their backs on Him. 
But here's the great thing about the Bible. It doesn't just list the problem, it also provides the solution. Turn to God and trust Him. Decide to obey Him and follow Him. Change direction, repent. You see here the solution involves making a decision to commit to being God's people. Decision needs to be made. And that decision is to trust God. Let me show you how that works out. God says, beginning in verse 18, Come now, let us settle the matter. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God is saying, Jerusalem, there is hope here for you. Despite your rejection of me, despite your sins being like scarlet, they can be as white as snow. And for those of us who know what it's like to have sins that are red like scarlet, how amazing are these words that they can become white like snow? Here in chapter 1, Isaiah doesn't give us the mechanism to how this will all work out. He doesn't tell us how red sins become white like snow. Today we know, as those who live in New Testament times, that this is ultimately achieved by Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. We know it's through him, Jesus, taking the sin that we were due, the cost, paying that. But Isaiah does show us that a change is required. Do you see that there in verse 16? Wash. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. What's required here? Willingness obedience, repentance, a return to the Lord. And it's held up here as an option, a choice for the people. Obey and enjoy the great blessings of being part of God's family or resist and rebel and be devoured. For Judah, in the face of Isaiah's terrible prophecy of their entrapment to King Sennacherib, where does their rescue lie? It lies in them trusting God that are surrendered to God, not to Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, that are to repent and seek God as their provider, their help and their strength. I think that leads us to one of the really big themes in the book of Isaiah, trust and surrender. We're to trust God for our security, our needs, our deliverance, our salvation. I've been thinking about this. I reckon it's probably harder in many ways for us today to trust God than it was for the people in Isaiah's time. Today we've got so many reasons to trust in ourselves. So much good things in our life. We don't need to trust God for food. Woolworths or Coles will give us that. We need to trust God for our water. We have SA water for that. Our security rests in the hands of SAPOL and the Australian Army. But just like in Isaiah's time, to be God's people today 
means that we will trust in him for our deliverance and our salvation. Saying we trust God, it's a fairly easy thing to say, isn't it? But doing it, surrendering to God, is much harder. Perhaps it's easier, though, when we realise how red our sins really are. We realise what's required for us to be made white like snow. We need to trust God that he will use us for his glory. That if we hand our lives over to him, he'll use us today as his special possession so that we as his people might declare his praises. Isaiah is a book about how God will refine his special people, his possession, eventually bringing them into the new promised heavens and the new promised earth. That makes it a book for us today as we work out what's required to be God's people. I wonder if you realise that. We are today God's special possession. I want you to come with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. It's on page 1,888 of your Black Bibles. And as you're turning there, Peter is writing to Christians scattered throughout the world. He's writing to those who have chosen through the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus. And this is what he says. He says in verse 9 of chapter 2, But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Isaiah was written to God's special people that they might recognize their own sin and trust in God for their salvation. That would enable them to be what they were called to be, a light to the nations. And we're called to be the same thing. We're called to be a holy people, to be God's special possession that we might declare his praises that we might praise him for the work that he's done in our lives of taking us from darkness into his wonderful light. Isaiah is the story of how God refines his people, how he brings about salvation. That makes it our story too. As we work through this book, I hope we will see clearly together the holiness of God and our dire need for him and his servant, Jesus. It will, I hope, highlight again and again our need to trust in God, to worship him and to follow him wholeheartedly. It will show us the way of salvation, the way out of those situations that entrap and snare us. And it's a book that promises a glorious, wonderful, amazing future for those who are part of God's people. And we'll be looking at some of those themes over the next five weeks together. Let me pray for us as we finish. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of rescue, a God of salvation and hope. We thank you that you're a God who refines and cleanses us. We give you thanks for the work of Jesus who has washed us clean. Father, we thank you for giving us the story of Israel, so that we can see how you're a God at work in this world. 
And Father, we thank you for including us as your people, your treasured possession. Help us to long for the promises that you have made to us of a new heaven and a new earth. Amen.